Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and today we're bringing you the third of four panels that took place at the Energy Efficiency Summit 2022 back on the 6th of October. Uh, we have brought you the leaders panel last episode. We had a cracking resi session with uh, Kelly Court from ACOS. And uh, uh, this episode, we move on to commercial buildings. Uh, Francesca Muscovich, Director of National Policy at the Property Council of Australia, chaired a panel entitled Batteries of the Nation, Zero Emissions Commercial Buildings, which, uh, as you'd expect, uh, dove deep on the uh, opportunities to electrify residual gas load in commercial buildings, um, the opportunities to uh, pursue uh, the significant energy efficiency opportunities that remain in the commercial building sector, but also importantly, um, think carefully around the way that buildings uh, interact with a high penetration 21st century energy system. Um, Frankie is an outstanding chair. Uh, this was an incredibly energetic and engaging panel with some fantastic panellists, uh, all of them leaders of the uh, transition in Australia's uh, commercial building sector. Um, I really enjoyed it. I uh, hope you do too. I'm absolutely delighted to uh, to welcome up to the stage uh, the chair of our next panel, um, one Frankie Muscovich. You may have heard of, heard of her. She's, of course, the National Policy Director for the Property Council of Australia, um, she's forged a career in promoting greener buildings, both as an advocate and as an engineer with a deep passion for sustainability. That sounds pretty fancy. But of course, she's better known as the co-host for the, of the Let Me Sum Up podcast, <laughs> my uh, my favourite uh, climate and uh, energy podcast. Uh, get right on it. Um, she's going to be joined by uh, three absolutely amazing sustainability Leaders, I want to welcome uh, my friend Davina Rooney, the CEO of the Green Building Council of Australia, another qualified engineer. Um, this panel is going to be filthy with engineers in a moment. Uh, Davina brings practical knowledge and experience to GBCA's advocacy, helping to transform complex supply chains. And I have the honour of serving on the, the board of the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council with Davina, along with Ken, who we had on the on the panel earlier. Um, we also have Carlos Flores. Uh, the director of Neighbours. Um, you've all already got a few shout-outs over the course of uh, today, Carlos. You're doing pretty well, so you'll be able to uh, lean into that. Uh, Neighbours, of course, uh, you know, the, the crown jewel, I like to say, in, uh, in Australia's energy efficiency policy landscape and having just come back from, from Europe, um, uh, a trip that... Um, Frankie and Carlos join me on just a, a huge amount of enthusiasm and interest with what Australia's been able to achieve uh, with with neighbours and an incredible opportunity to, to lean into that to transform the rest of the commercial building sector. And last but certainly not least, David Palin, uh, the Sustainability Manager for Mervac's Integrated Investment Portfolio. Um, you know, responsible for this wonderful building, among many others, David and your team, uh, delivers Mervax. This changes everything. Sustainability strategy across the office, industrial, retail, and build-to-rent portfolios. Welcome to you all. Can't wait for the conversation. Over to you, Frankie. Thanks, Luke. And I have assembled a feisty panel of uh, building <laughs> policy wonks who have promised to talk over each other and, and stumble in their enthusiasm to talk about the topic at hand today. Um, 
Just in sort of framing this up, so Ken said earlier, buildings, they're about a quarter of Australia's emissions, around half electricity use. About half of those emissions are in commercial buildings. What do I mean when we talk about commercial buildings? It's big, fancy, delightful offices uh, like this one, but it's also suburban shopping centres. It's schools, it's hospitals, it's warehouse and logistics. The term kind of masks a lot of complexity that sits under, um, you know, the headline. And so whilst there aren't silver bullets, I think there are some common strategies and big policy levers I'm looking forward to unpacking with this panel. Now, the other thing to say in opening things up is that uh, in the commercial building space, led by companies like Mervac, we are actually world leaders at the top end of our industry. We're the best in the world at this stuff. Amazing. And, uh, and you know, I took some heart from what the minister said about, you know, we're, we're starting on, on good ground in some areas. The commercial building sector is one of those. The challenge remains to extend the amazing work that companies like Mervac and others do to the very, very, very long tail and the diversity of building stock that we've got in this country. So uh, these guys are going to help me unpack that a little bit. Um, I think also Carlos, otherwise known as the purveyor of fine PowerPoint slides, um, has provided some which could serve as a bit of a backdrop for our conversation. I wanted to throw to you first to talk a bit about the track record of Neighbours. As Luke said, it gets a shout out. It's a world leading program. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what sectors it covers at the moment? Sure. And I'm not, I'm not going to do a shout out to myself and, and my team. <laughs> I, do. I kind of think you just did, but I, that's okay. But I do, what I do want to do is talk about the importance of policy. So we heard it earlier by Commissioner McAllister about, you know, getting energy savings in buildings is really important and also not easy. Most countries are trying. A lot of them are really struggling. Um, and so we have this dichotomy of being sort of at the bottom of the ladder in energy efficiency at the IEA. So we're towards, towards the bottom, sometimes the last country in the OECD in that ranking and being perhaps the single country that's driven the most energy savings in some sectors like offices. And the reason has been government policy. So let's look at a couple of slides and everyone on this panel played a huge role in that as well. So please jump in at, jump in at any time. It's just three slides. The first one is, Navy has been around for 25 years, starting in the late 90s, and this is the number of offices, office market, that we have certified uh, every year, right? Uh, and I wanted to show, I, I color-coded it a little bit, because at the beginning we didn't have a lot of ratings. We're mostly certifying, you know, the best building in, from companies like Mervac, uh, but perhaps not so much like the not-so-good buildings from Mervac and most other property companies. So the early days was just the crown jewel of certain portfolios. Um, and then we saw two really big jumps on people participating in neighbors, both of them driven by government policy. The first one was between 2005, 2006, when the Australian government and the great majority of territories and, and the states said, we're the biggest renter of office space. Let's use our procurement power. And this is a lesson that we should relearn because we have so much more that we can do with that. Um, and we saw literally the number of buildings participating in neighbors really growing because government said, if you don't have a neighbors rating, you don't meet this minimum. We're not going to rent any additional building from you as we go forward. We saw a huge number of people coming in and saying, we need to know how all our buildings are doing, not just like the good ones, but also the not so good ones. And how do we actually get them into that zone? Uh, and that happened in the 26 to 2010 sort of era. And then from then, the, the pink bars you see there is a huge growth in the number of buildings participating uh, in 2010. And that was because of mandatory disclosure. It's actually called the Commercial Building Disclosure Program, but really it's called mandatory disclosure globally, uh, that type of policy. But it literally means 
if you want to sell an office or you want to rent a space in an office, like, like in this one, you actually need to get a neighbor's rating and you need to advertise it everywhere. It's a transparency metric. So you need to put it on your website, outside of the building. You need to put it on the, the, the lease that you send with the tenant. So everyone will know how good, how sustainable this building is before a financial transaction happens. And, and so obviously mandatory disclosure brings a lot of people into neighbors. And so, if we move into the next slide, just to see what, what's happening. Frankie, if you want to jump in. I want to put a pin on it just for a minute because I want to throw to Dave and just hear a bit from you about as a doer and as, a, you know, as an owner of like great buildings and then maybe some not so great buildings that you've brought up, like what has the existence of neighbours meant for you when it, uh, you know, when it comes down to well, OPEX, money you've saved, conversations with investors? What's the importance of a neighbours program to you? I think we're incredibly privileged in Australia to have neighbours and Greenstar. So the two of them, it's really the two jewels in the crown as far as we're concerned, both from an operational and from a design perspective. So we are in an incredibly privileged position. I think from a neighbour's perspective, it's a level playing field. We all talk the same language. It doesn't matter what state you're in, what building you're in, we all talk the same language. That's been incredibly important. It's also simplified the conversation. When you're talking to a tenant, everybody gets six stars is really good, zero stars you suck. It's every, and everything in between. So it's, it's really easy to have that. And it's also really easy if you're presenting to investors. One of our buildings, 380 St. Kilda, went from a three and a half star outcome to a five and a half star outcome under neighbors. And that was just purely from operational efficiency and just working through the capex that we had in there. That's a, about $470,000 a year in energy cost savings, valuation uplift of around $8 million. That's just one asset. And so you look at neighbors, you can actually communicate that quite easily. So it makes that really, really straightforward. And I think another thing that, Carlos, you mentioned about the target, the four and a half star target, Another thing that that really did was actually change the discussions. Another thing that Green Buildings, um, the Green Star Buildings tool has done as well was change the discussion. We've gone from a why would you do this to a how do you do this. Mm-hmm. So we're no longer having arguments with consultants around why we want to degasify buildings. We're now talking about how we're going to do it. Same all those years ago with neighbours. Uh, why do you want a four and a half start? Okay, how are we going to achieve it? So it really has changed the game. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring Davina in here as well because Green Star and Neighbours have been working in partnership for a really long time. It's another reason we're the envy of the world in this little, you know, part of the the space. I'd love a bit of a reflection from you on what what that's meant for the work of the Green Building Council, but also the way that you've seen the role of governments in this space too. Well, I, I think what's really interesting in here and what Carlos was talking about is you know, in 2006 with um, calling energy efficiency, that was market leading globally and it hasn't moved since, right? So we've got an enormous opportunity to rebring government procurement really to the heart of this. One of the things that was really heartening was the Albanese government calling for carbon neutrality in government offices by 2030. Last time we saw um, with the EGO Act, that was last called in 2007, we saw an arms race of all the states to move to higher standards. It's time for a new arms race to have government tenants who are 30% of this marketplace. By the way, they use about 30% of the hotels too. So there's this enormous opportunity to actually get disclosure. Um, If you put the next click on that slide, we saw the leading market come down then we put, took it to the smaller end of the market, and guess what happened? Everyone said they're the small players. They won't be able to move. They followed the same curve but went faster because the big players trained the supply chain. 
There's this enormous opportunity to take this, take it across hotels. Let's take it across the really obvious one, office tenants. The number of institutional financiers who I talk to and they say, we're doing great work of our buildings. Look at Mervac, look at Investor. And I say, what about the space you occupy? And they don't know because there's no disclosure in that space, so they don't look at it. There's enormous opportunities for us to take this leading diagram and take it across the whole parts of the sector because in the parts where we measure and manage, those who work with ourselves and neighbours, we're international leaders and in the rest of the market, we're laggards. So I think we need to look at, you know, it was reflected in some spaces that we don't have all the answers but when we do have the answers, it's our role to apply them at scale. So Frankie, if I, if I may jump into that, because just to make sure that, that we all know what we're seeing. So those two lines in that graph represent pretty much any office building you've ever seen. It's the entirety of the office market. Uh, the first one, the first, the gray line is mostly big property companies that re, that reacted to to procurement. So it's companies like Mervac and GPT and list really big companies. Um, and then the ones with disclosure is not like that. Is small trust, a family that happens to own a site in Adelaide, a, an investor that has a property in Sydney and another one in Vancouver. And that part of the market is so difficult to move. Like mm. almost there's hardly any country that's managed to find a way to mobilize that. So these two lines is the entire office sector, the entire office sector, reducing energy consumption at the fastest rate of any sector in Australia and at the fastest rate that any building sector in any country almost certainly. Um, and a lot of the discussions we had a couple of months ago was in, in Europe with, uh, with Frankie Luke Menzel and other colleagues on an on a energy efficiency delegation. Um, often when we show these numbers across an entire sector in a single decade, uh, a lot of people just look at them with mouth open because Europe has been trying with a lot of policy to achieve this and it's actually been really difficult. And so the first thing is like, well, how do you do it? And we tell them all about it. And then the next question is, and why do you have it just in one sector? Like it's, a, it's, it's $1.2 billion of energy savings cumulative in the last decade. Uh, the cost of regulation is very small um, and is, is been a runaway success. And so there's a, there's a lot of things that we can do with technology. We talked about it earlier. Uh, this is things that we achieved last decade with the technology and expertise we had 10 years ago. And those savings are still available in almost any other sector. And offices, by the way, keeps improving. It's not like they stop. Every year is actually better than the year before. Mm. I, I, prob yeah, I, I promised just... feistiness. I'm like, <laughs> we're clearly <laughs> delivering on this. This is great. I want to get to the policy call-outs in this conversation. I don't want us to bury the lead too much. Not, like Number one is neighbours across everything, right? Yeah. Like, so how, how far have we gone and where, where else do we need to go? So... But, and I think maybe to, to acknowledge that the, the Commonwealth government has been funding neighbours to expand to multiple sectors. So it recently expanded to warehouses and courses, for example, just last week, uh, residential aged care and retirement living, which is actually very relevant to the previous panel because there's a bit of an intersection between residential and commercial uh, in, in, in that space. Uh, and, and we're expanding out to schools and, 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 and other sectors. But obviously, the built environment is a big place. There's actually a lot of sectors that we can continue to expand. And I think that's something that we're looking into at the moment. I think it's a live opportunity for the future. But where you have tools that are established in the market, there's no reason why they shouldn't be prime candidates for disclosure. Like, let's, let's call out two things. One, the markets where we already have functioning tool spaces, they're prime for disclosure policy opportunities right now. The second is the reason why this graph is so unusual 
is lots of forms of disclosure. You have to tell your energy, but it's done in a confusing way that no one really believes. It takes data and it gives you back data. The gift of Neighbours and Green Star is it takes data and it turns it into information. And that's why this feisty panel is even more feisty when we're talking about residential disclosure, about having one clear system that's really meaningful to lots of people rather than a framework with a whole lot of different systems that you might be able to drink a glass of wine and compare them over a period of time. You know, we really need to be ruthless on disclosure that it actually is genuinely impactful and meaningful, takes data and turns to information because when it provides that market signal, you see graphs like this. In most other places of the world, you see a graph like this or sometimes worryingly huge amounts of effort for disclosure for limited impact. I, I think we could run away into the resi space, but I'm not going to take over <laughs> Kelly's territory. We could definitely <laughs> go there, but we won't. The point is well made. Um, and Dave, you were going to say something earlier as well. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say, if that graph isn't the dictionary definition of a target-rich environment, I'm not sure what is. It, yeah. We heard earlier about silver bullets. Maybe some sectors don't have them, but we have platinum-tipped bullets, yeah. and they're all over the place. <laughs> and they really are. And I think that graph, again, demonstrates that. And I think um, we should also reflect on the fact that while while the CBD program has it, so it hasn't expanded to offices, right, But it, uh, beyond offices, but it was reviewed a few years ago, and the result of that review, one recommended that we expand to office tenancies. There was a really strong rationale for that. It also recommended with assistance going into hotels. And it noted that, you know, like there's potential. I mean, the shopping center tool at the time only covered the big end of town. A lot of them are already doing it. But all the suburban smaller shopping centers are, are out there and would also be low-hanging fruit. The, the rationale that was given for the success of the program, like the central kind of hypothesis it proves out, is that what, what you measure is managed. So it wasn't necessarily the fact that you had to put it on a, stick it on a sign outside, although it helps uh, in the office space. Uh, simply knowing that your performance is crap uh, is going to mean you're going to then focus on that and do better. Nobody likes getting a, a zero star energy rating and that's borne out, um, you know, in the graph. So point made. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to move on uh, to expand a little bit uh, on the role of government. We, I guess we've covered the sort of transformative impact, if you like, on uh, government procurement policies as it relates to offices. But governments don't uh, just have, you know, a presence in that space, right? I think you picked up on hotels, Davina. We should also call out social infrastructure, mm. schools, hospitals. Uh, governments are significant players in these sectors, what would all of you say uh, to a stronger role for government there? We see huge opportunities. Like we've been doing phenomenal work with different departments. So schools infrastructure, New South Wales, you know, we've got over 80 schools we're looking at together, absolutely delivering them in their pipeline, doing some huge work on the Olympics. But I'd have to note there's over 600 councils if you're talking about education in Australia, you're talking about eight different states and territories jurisdiction. There is no procurement alignment. This is an opportunity-rich space. So highly efficient buildings powered by renewables, fossil fuel-free, lower embodied carbon with nature-based solutions. 
Like we can lead this from the built environment. We have leading it. Now, there's wonderful councils who are leading in this space. There's wonderful state governments who are leading in this space, but we don't have a clear plan and trajectory for when federal funding goes into those projects where it's actually tied to them going to carbon neutral pathways. And we know that those are done best when they're built. There's also enormous opportunities that we could be running through with the existing buildings that I know we'll unpack as we go along. Yeah. Okay, maybe to, to complement that as well, I think there's a, there are two reasons why government taking action on its own buildings is really important. One of them is because we use a ton of energy, right? I work for government, a ton of energy, a ton of emissions, and we need to do something about that. And that's part of getting to net zero emissions in 43% by 2030. Uh, that's one side. But the other side is that when, if we do that, we have the scale to create a stable demand for a lot of markets that are small. We actually need a lot more people to do energy efficiency, and we need them to have experience. Uh, we need to create a market for electrification, which is embarrassingly small in Australia compared to almost any major developed nation. Uh, we practically don't have an electrification market. And one way to create that is actually having a lot of governments creating a stable demand for electrifying the new buildings and existing buildings. And so it's not just about electri- uh, 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 you know, improving our assets and decarbonizing them. It's actually about creating the professions that we need to, you know, to really scale that up across the economy. And the longer we wait to use those levers, the, you know, the, the less amount of time we're providing to train those plumbers and electricians to, to, to electrify, you know, homes and medium-sized buildings and to, you know, give a lot of the big, um, design firms the experience on how do you electrify a 65 story that has residential and commercial and hotels? How do you do that? How many people in Australia have experience with that? The only way to get experience is by actually doing it. And so as governments, when we create that demand, especially if we can move ahead of a lot of the market, which we haven't, to be honest, in the last decade, um, we can start creating and, and growing that demand. There's a lot of other companies like, like Mervac here in the panel that are also doing that on themselves. But if you look at the size of assets, as big as Mervac is and multi-billion dollar corporation, uh, is less than 0.1% of the number of assets that any state territory or the Australian government have. So that is why our procurement is so important because we can really amplify those efforts and create markets at speeds that we wouldn't see otherwise. I've heard the magic word electrification used a couple of times. So um, let's go there. Um, we had commentary around gas earlier on, um, and, and we know that, you know, for our friends in the industrial sector, that's a, that is a harder, um, you know, that, that's a harder journey. Um, do we need to be using gas in buildings uh, anymore? No, simply no. Just make it nice and easy. Good stuff. So we need to transition out. So absolutely not for new buildings. So, you know, when we've talked about the role of government, we've talked about what they can do in their own procurement. We really need to talk about the National Construction Code. We've seen phenomenal leadership from ACT with their electrification work in buildings. The New South Wales Sustainable um, Building SEP is another opportunity, but they're two slightly different approaches from two of eight jurisdictions we really need a national plan in this space. That That's absolutely where we need to go because there's clear things, you know, so at the Green Building Council, we've worked with hospitals to electrify, the Powerhouse Museum to electrify, um, community swimming pools to electrify, office buildings. If we can do that spectrum without a national plan, imagine what we could do together. 
think that way where it comes in. Thank you. It's, it's mm. so powerful if you have tenants starting to come to you, as well as investors, but tenants co- coming to you and saying, we want fossil fuel-free assets. So net zero now, but we want fossil fuel-free in this period. Mm. That's when it gets really powerful. That's when it turns from an interesting to a fascinating argument or discussion. So, I mean, look, if the National Construction Code in 2025 was going to say no more gas in new buildings, like that that aligns with where Europe has sort of set um, their targets because of what's happening in Ukraine. But, but I mean, that's not going to affect your plans in terms of the commitments that you've made. But could you talk a little bit about how Mervax approached this? So you're a large commercial building operator. You don't, uh, you don't just focus in commercial. You also deliver housing. Um, what do those commitments look like to you? Well, probably should rewind back to 2014 when we set our strategy. So if we can go back to then, so our strategy was we wanted to be net positive in carbon by 2030, scope one and scope two. And that was 2014, we set that strategy. The first thing we did was energy efficiency. It was the absolute foundation, 20% reduction in carbon, or carbon intensity off that. Great place to start as well, because it's back in FY19, we're looking at pre-COVID, so we don't want to put the COVID in there. FY19 saves us about $2.5 million a year in energy costs, and that's a valuation uplift of about $43 million across the portfolio. So tick, tick in terms of the actual impact, then we could buy renewables. And then we, when we got it down to less than 10%, we started buying the offsets. And that's how we got to the net positive carbon. What we, what we really want to do is actually take away the offsets in the operational portfolio. We should be thinking about those more from the development side, again, because it's harder in the materials selection. Still doable, but we just need to work with that part of the industry and the supply chain partners. So really, we want to get rid of those offsets completely, and we want all electric assets. It, there's lots of things. We talk a lot about the constraints, but let's talk about some of the opportunities around that. The opportunities are we'll attract tenants who want to be in fossil fuel-free buildings. So number one, the biggest cost for any building is vacancy. It's not energy cost, not security, not cleaning. It's vacancy. So put that on the table. You can attract all those tenants then. You'll have a neighbor's impact improvement because we're moving away from fossil fuels and we're going to 100% renewables. We'll be buying less offsets. The reputation and brand that comes with that as well. There's so many opportunities and benefits even before we get into the technology benefits associated with that. So I, there's an opportunity here, like in Australia specifically, the next decade our grid is going to decarbonize faster than almost anywhere else in the world. So our, our grid's going to be pretty green by the end of the decade. Our, our leading commercial building owners are the best in the world at what they do. So the, the, the influx of, of EVs, the integration of batteries, solar. I mean, this session is called Batteries of the Nation. Like the, the, the point is the lines are being blurred between the built environment uh, and, and energy infrastructure that we have. We need that policy making to be a lot more, you know, interrelated and connected. Um, are there, you know, I mean, just listening to what um, Commissioner McAllister had to say uh, earlier this morning, has that sparked anything for you, in t- like just in terms of a reflection of the way that we do things here in Australia and how we might seek to do things differently? I mean, if I, if I may jump in, there's a couple of things that uh, we saw in that presentation in particular, which we also saw in Germany, and it was uh, something that we had a lot of reflection on. Uh, Margot uh, Lafleur was also in that trip as well. Um, and Germany has two things that California also has, and you often see it in a lot of uh, countries that are really leading in, in climate change have uh, and is they had two things. One, they had a target for any electricity savings in buildings because we need them to reduce infrastructure costs over the next two or three decades. Currently, no state, territory, or the Australian government has a target on actually chasing. We want to get those savings because it's going to cost too much 
for the supply side of the energy sector to do all the heavy lifting. At the moment, we don't have targets. Um, we haven't even done the work on like how much would that save at the government level. There's not a lot of work yet in that space, not as much as, as other leading countries. So a target for energy savings. 2025, 2030, 35, 40, what are we chasing? And, and that changes the equation as I work with a lot of policymakers across like all the governments in Australia. It's very different having to push for every energy efficiency program on its own. You have to prove the value of any energy efficiency program. A target changes the equation to what is the best, cheapest, fastest, uh, most equitable way of achieving those targets. It's very different. So targets for energy savings in the electricity front in buildings, we don't have one. I think we could really use one. Uh, and potentially multiple at the state levels as well. But a target for electrification. We, we saw as well, you know, California at three million uh, buildings, I think it was by 2030, and six million by 2035, I want to say. Yeah. Um, Germany also had targets. And for this year, next year, the year after that, reporting publicly, the reason why they're doing it is because they actually sat down, counted the beans, and they realized electrifying the building sector is like electric vehicles. It's going to take two to three decades, and we haven't started just yet. Uh, Germany is electrifying half a million buildings by 2024. That's their target. We are electrifying almost zero at the moment. We don't even have numbers. Uh, and I think, again, that's the power of targets. It's, I know the discussion around gas is difficult. It's a very difficult discussion. All countries are having that discussion at the moment. But it doesn't mean that we couldn't have targets in the short term for electrification because, again, we need to... Same thing that we procurement before. We need to build the market. How do we get to 50 or 100,000 qualified electricians and plumbers with experience uh, installing heat pumps by first having a thousand of them and installing heat pumps. And we actually don't have a pathway to create those markets right now. And I think some targets would make a huge difference in, in this decade and the next. And Frankie, that could have been a Dorothy Dixer. I mean, we've been looking at this work for a while and the way we frame it to industry is from net zero buildings to zero. So you're trying to match the renewables with the buildings and the efficiency um, so we've got a paper coming out at the end of the year that we're um, partnering with Buildings Alive to actually look really specifically at this area because if we go from net zero buildings to zero buildings, we're actually going to save the grid huge amounts of infrastructure. And if you look at the return on investment of that, it's a lot easier to put some push subsidies into the built environment sector to do this than build all these poles and wires and do what we did when we gold-plated the network the first time one way and then gold-plated a different way and then discover really, you know, clever digital solutions. We should be investing in that future now. And all disclosure pathways, when we look at those in commercial or resi, we need to look at the efficiency aspect and the electrification aspect of it because, and that's why the construction code's you know, so critical because whatever we leave on the table now, we've got to come back and painfully retrofit one building at a time. Mm. So that's why the focus on getting it right now when there's actually 30 to 50 year lifetimes is absolutely so critical in this space. For those who are following it, we put out a new buildings guide. A few years ago, people said for large towers like this, it'd cost a couple of million more. Now we're back to cost neutral. We're not at cost neutral for doing this in existing buildings. They're long, slow plans. So actually turning the tap off while we mop up the floor is going to be pretty important in this space. Okay, so that's why it's so important to set the target now. That's why we set a target at 2030 to electrify the portfolio because you do, you do have that lead time. 
but it still gives us seven and a half years to work through that and to start allocating the capital now into those later years, do the studies now so we understand. And there is lots of opportunities. We send lots of heat out of buildings up a cooling tower. Maybe we could grab that and reuse it. So there's a lot of opportunities there at the same time. And you'll see the tenant base move with that. And Frankie, maybe to, to draw another parallel with an earlier session, I think that uh, a lot of us in this room should be really excited about the announcement that uh, the assistant minister just made today. Because uh, we've been, a lot of us who work in demand for, I've worked in demand for 12 years in Australia, and we've been begging for a coordinated strategy on how do we get savings in a strategic manner? How do we actually go for the, you know, the potential of energy savings in buildings that we've seen reports for 50 years saying that the potential is there? We've actually never had the chance to say, you know, this could be the way for us to have put a target short-term, long-term, calculate what are the savings we're going to get on the supply side and take a bit of pressure just from renewables. And, and I think is a, such an exciting uh, announcement. And so I'm reacting here in, in, in real time, but I just wanted to commend you for that because uh, <laughs> a lot of us uh, who work in this space, uh, a strategy like that is going to make a huge difference in us being able to do a lot more for the next decade. And, and so I think it's, it's really exciting. We're excited. I can tell you're excited. <laughs> I want to I kind of circle the wagons a bit. Uh, we've talked about um, big, powerful levers that, you know, actually the, the Commonwealth can pull, things like the, the building code. Um, and, and, you know, we've heard from, from Dave about like the work that leaders are doing and, and the opportunities in that. But then there's the what about everyone else, right? And and the and the existing building stock. So I want to hear from each of you, and, and maybe Dave, this is built up of the like the experience you've had, you know, over this last decade of like actually doing the work on the ground. What's the kind of support you th- you think is going to be required for our suburban shopping centres, for our small retail? Um, outlets, schools, hospitals to do electrification on old existing assets, to do efficiency. Um, what's the kind of support you think could be needed? I think the first place I'd start is the actual consulting and engineering industries, just building that muscle. Unfortunately, it wasn't that long ago when we were having those discussions around why would you want to electrify? I think because of green star buildings, we're now having the discussion about how we're going to electrify. Um, and because of neighbours as well and the changes in neighbours. So it's absolutely changed the market. But I think we do need to build that muscle. We're actually putting together a panel of consultants now around electrification. And there's lots of discussion with all the sustainability engineers who actually sits on that panel and who doesn't, who's got the capabilities and who hasn't. It's not a particularly long list at the moment. Yeah. So there's a big skills and workforce piece here. And as I think we noted also, um, the skills are transferable, right? And and because of the fact that we've had neighbours in Green Star in Australia, we Australia can actually be knowledge exporters in this space. We already are conquering the world one country at a time. Hello, Germany. Um, <laughs> Carlos and Davina, would you add anything in terms of like the sorts of policies you would want to see to support retrofits? Um, so it's, it's really difficult not to mention disclosure in a conversation like that. Because if you segment the market, we're, we're talking mostly about businesses of many different types. And if you, you can segment them by the ones that, uh, most of them are not doing a lot of energy efficiency, but you can segment them by the ones that could and actually have the resources, and we just need them to, they just need a little push to actually really look at those opportunities and do it, but they don't need funding, and they don't necessarily need, they can self-skill as well. There's a lot of businesses in that category 
but we don't have any policy interventions making it visible that their buildings are really poor. They don't know that either. Like most people just don't know that their building is using twice as much as just the average building in that market, not even good buildings. Um, so making it visible, we know from the example from offices that it makes a massive difference for those businesses, the ones that could do something and they're not doing anything. Um, and then there's, uh, there's businesses that are a little bit analogous to the conversation we had in the previous panel. They are small businesses that don't have sustainability teams, the energy efficiency managers, and, and that's a great majority of, of businesses. A lot of them operate inside of buildings, uh, and they actually need more support. than So disclosure is often, we see from offices, that is also helpful for them. But often they need more support. They need access to expertise. Sometimes they need access to finance. Um, and I do think it's important to segment them, but it's very difficult to look at the, the runaway success of the commercial building disclosure program in Australia as the most successful program of its kind anywhere. And, and looking at other countries proposing to copy the Australian model across the building sector and not looking at that, well, we should probably go deep into how many savings can we get from that program and how do we complement it with other levers that that program can really create in a lot of these markets? So, so we've talked quite a bit about policy in this, but I always talk about what does it take for an ecosystem to change? So we've been hearing today about the carrots and the sticks, but I always talk about the tampering as well. So, you know, the carrot is programs like Green Star that are voluntary, that have got set trajectories for decarbonising and they've got them for new buildings. There's a longer one out to 2040 for existing buildings you know, moving across all these spectrums and then there's one for precincts where we work with partners in that space. So having a voluntary thing that people get higher valuations, you know, better attributes, the sticks. I think we've talked about policy aspects well on this. But then there's there's the tambourine, the bit. You know, it's really hard to convince lots of people who don't want to do things they have to change. So we've, you know, people talked about energy efficiency not being sexy or cool. We actually have to make this a people's movement. So later this year, we'll be launching with partners, and we'd love to hear from you, a cook-safe coalition with celebrity chefs like Neil Perry launching how much better it is to cook with electric systems and why you don't really want gas in your home if it's as bad for your kids as passive smoking. You know, And so have this as a consumer campaign because we know that in every asset class, people spend 90% of their time indoors. They want healthier, more comfortable, affordable for their family and so the best way to an electrify a building is to convince someone that it's better for their cooking and for their family. They don't have an emotional relationship with their hot water system. <laughs> and so we've got to work on this is a hearts and minds campaign as much as we love to wonk it up in this space. You know, unless we speak to the average Australian about what's better for them, we can't change everything if we can't reach everyone. Feels like a really good place to end this session. Um, I fear we could go all afternoon and then Luke would be very unhappy with me. Um, so I just uh, really want to, I think, re-emphasize the energy that's in this sector. I think the, um, the really heartening thing is that we've got a lot of the tools and some of the foundational things in place, but we need coverage and we need scale and we sort of need it now. Um, so could I just... Please ask you uh, to thank my fabulous panel, Davina, Carlos, and Dave. Well, there you go. Uh, thanks to Frankie for chairing in an outstanding session. This was one of the real highlights of the summit. And obviously, Carlos, uh, Davina, Dave, um, all just towering figures in the uh, in the commercial building space. 
Um, it was uh, incredibly exciting to have the benefit of your insights and expertise and the op- opportunity to accelerate a transition uh, that is already underway in the commercial building space. Um, hey, as I've said, we're really keen to uh, make sure that um, as many people as possible have access to the insights and expertise that were generated at the summit, um, as well as the, uh, the recordings that are rolling out in this feed. Um, there are also video recordings, so you can actually uh, get some of the colour and movement as well as the audio if you wish. Um, if you want to take a look at the videos from the summit, you can visit ec.org.au forward slash summit 22 Uh, for now it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon